Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we pray that you would once again, by the power of your Spirit, open it up to us, that we may have fresh understanding. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As most of you uh, may know, I have asked for your input for a preaching series we plan to do in the fall on questions people are asking. I think I may rue the day I had such a bright idea. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, I've received some excellent questions. It's just I'm not sure how I can even begin to answer some of them. Anyway, keep those questions coming and we'll follow through on this in the fall. But today, we encounter some tough questions in our passage from the book of Job. But what makes it all the more intriguing is that the, the one asking the questions is God. And we'll look at the specifics of those in a moment. Much of our modern world and many folks who work in the universities within walking distance of where we are this morning devote their lives to finding answers. And I'm very glad that they do. And I'm hugely grateful for the advances in science and medicine and technology and so many other disciplines of study. But our Old Testament passage and our gospel reading today offer another perspective, a reminder, if you like, that we don't have all the answers and we never will. Job actually cannot answer God's questions. Bishop Leslie Newbegin, in his book, The Other Side of 1984, wrote this. As heirs of the Enlightenment and representatives of the modern scientific worldview, our normal procedure is to list a series of problems, identify their causes, and then propose solutions based on a scientific analysis of the situation. We normally proceed on the assumption that there must, in principle, be a solution which proper research can identify and proper techniques can deliver. He goes on to write, Today, we are becoming skeptical about this approach. We are coming to see that there are problems in human life for which there are no solutions. The question has to be asked whether or not we need new models for understanding our human situation. And I think we do. And one of those new models might be that we would make more sense of things if actually we were prepared to accept that it's okay to live in the tension of not having the answers to every question. Indeed, some questions have no answers, at least not that will satisfy an enlightenment way of thinking. And the book of Job is a very good example of this. It's a story about suffering. More particularly, the suffering of a devout and upright man who, though he suffers at the hands of Satan, does so with God looking on, allowing that suffering to take place. And the book of Job does not offer easy answers. Indeed, to some of the questions, it, it gives us no answers at all. The story confronts its readers with the horrors of human pain and suffering. And Job's friends can't handle Job questioning God. 
They can't handle his despair at what's happening to him and his family. They can't live with the human suffering that Job embodies before them. And so they, like many others today, look for causes. They want to know why, and they want to find solutions, and they want to have answers. But this amazing piece of literature brings us face-to-face with some of the most profound questions in our lives, and actually, uncomfortable though it may be, challenges our simple theological answers. Job's friends insist on treating suffering as a problem to be solved rather than a profound mystery that it is so often. Well, we join the story in chapter 38 when at last God speaks. Up until this point, other than a few words in the heavenly court between God and Satan, God has been silent. All we've heard in this story is the incessant questioning of Job by his friends and their long, insufferable and know-it-all speeches about why, in their view, he's been suffering. They assumed Job must have sinned, and the suffering is some direct consequence of that. And yet, throughout, Job rightly asserts his innocence, his integrity. He's done nothing that has brought on this suffering. And he's cried out to God again and again and again, seemingly in vain, until the moment we join the story and God speaks. God had heard Job. He was listening. He did care. But God only answered Job in his time, his way, and on his terms. Now, at first reading, God's answer is a bit of a disappointment, for it seems not so much an answer as a series of questions. God gives no answer to Job's specific questions, no apology for having been silent for so long, no apparent acknowledgement of Job's struggle, no hint to Job about the background story of the conversations with Satan in the heavens. By the way, if you've never read this book, uh, Job, you really should read it. But I should warn you, it's not exactly a feel-good kind of book. But here's the thing. After chapter upon chapter of woes and heartache, of terrible anguish, of losing his family, his livelihood, his friends, everything he treasured, at the end of all that, he is laid bare before God. And then, at last... God speaks, and Job knows that he is not alone. And in what God says, we gain a whole new sense of perspective. Gird up your loins like a man. Brace yourself for what's coming. And that sounds kind of harsh to us, but I don't think it is. Rather, I think it's the ultimate reality check. Were you there... When I laid the foundation of the earth, asks God. Let's take a walk, Job, through creation. Come with me, says God, and I'll show you a thing or two. And then Job's questioning, like ours one day will be, is turned to stunned amazement at the Creator God, all-knowing, 
all-powerful, all-loving. No more contradictions, no more wondering, no more pain, just awe. Who laid the cornerstone of the earth when the morning stars sang together and all the heavenly beings shouted for joy? Could Job answer that? Can you answer that? Can I? Of course not. Job's worst nightmare was that God had abandoned him and didn't care about him. In the silence, in the isolation, in the terrible suffering, he'd assumed that God had let him down. Job didn't know what we, the reader, know about the conversations in the heavens. Job didn't know that, in a sense, God had taken a risk with Job to demonstrate Job's integrity and faithfulness for the heavenly purposes of God. Now, we may not like that, but that's what the Bible teaches us about this. The distancing by God and the absence Job felt were actually all part of the plot that Job wasn't privy to. And so Job walked by faith and not by sight. And in this epic story, Job stands for all those who have had to walk in the dark and keep trusting even against all odds. And so this morning, if there is anyone here who is walking by faith and not by sight, who is walking in the darkness, who feels not God's presence, but his absence, take heart. The resounding message of Job chapter 38 is that the Lord will come. God does speak. You are not forgotten or forsaken. Of course, in all truth, you never were. God does not abandon his people. It's just in the thick of the storms of life, we often forget that. It seems that that's what happened on Lake Galilee with the disciples, with Jesus in the boat. You know, one of the things I love about Mark's gospel is the eyewitness detail he often includes. In, in this case, he mentions, and there were other boats there. I mean, it's a gratuitous piece of information that adds absolutely nothing to the story. We don't need it at all. It's just a detail of something that really happened. But this account is one that many people find uncomfortable and challenging. You see, there are folks out there who are, uh, maybe in here, who are reasonably comfortable with the accounts of Jesus healing people or casting out demons because, well, they're a little bit easier to get our head around. They're easier if we're so minded to rationalize. You know, today with all the advances in our knowledge, some are content to explain away the miraculous aspect of this. And so what may have looked like a miracle in the first century, you know, through our modern sophisticated lens, we can understand perhaps in terms of psychology or psychiatry. Well, you can't do that with a story like ours this morning, with the storm on a lake. Nature miracles are a bit more challenging to the modern-day skeptic. You can't just explain away this story. Well, unless, of course, you say the whole thing's entirely made up. And, of course, some people do try and spiritualize it. And they say, well, it's all about gaining spiritual peace. And, and the story's just a metaphor. Well, I suppose you can do that, but not without effectively butchering the text and completely rejecting what it clearly states. Mark is writing 
an eyewitness account of something that happened. This story of Jesus speaking to the wind and the waves and calming the storm does have more than a physical meaning, but it doesn't have less than a physical meaning. Mark reports these events as a real occurrence in time and space. And what happened on the lake in the storm forces us to ask, who is this Jesus that even the winds and the waves obey him? And of course, for those of us who are very familiar with this, our answer is, well, he's the son of God. He's the eternal word who is there in the beginning of creation. But let's take a closer look at what happened that evening. Those fishermen disciples knew that lake well. They were experts. And if they were worried, surely everyone on that boat should have been very worried. And yet, amazingly, Jesus was asleep on a cushion. And so they wake him up. Don't you care? They ask. Do you, do you think he cared? Yeah, of course you do. But you're sitting comfortably in your pews, aren't you? You're not gasping for air in a swamped boat wondering if you'll drown. Well, Jesus could handle their fear and their anger, and he can handle yours. And he rebuked the wind and says to the sea, Peace, be still. And then the wind ceased. And there was a dead calm. And then Jesus says to them, why were you afraid? Have you still no faith? And then they were really filled with fear. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? You know, there are still people that try and suggest that Jesus was just a good man. But such a description really is completely at odds with how he's introduced to us in the Gospels and all that we know about what he said and what he did. He was so much more than merely a good man. The God who hovered over the waters of the deep in creation is the same God who parted the waters of the Red Sea and is the same God who calmed the waves on Lake Galilee. Jesus heals the sick, forgives sins, expels demons, and here speaks to a storm. And on that boat, in the middle of that lake, the disciples knew something really big was going on. The fear of perishing in the water was replaced by an altogether different kind of fear, the fear of the Lord. A kind, friendly, familiar Jesus is one thing, but a Jesus that can speak to the wind and the waves Whoa, that's really scary. But Jesus' response to the disciples also reveals the very essence of discipleship. You see, they wanted Jesus to do something. Jesus wanted them to trust him. They wanted him to do something. He wanted them to trust him. His very presence with them gave them everything that they needed. So what might we learn from this encounter? Well, I think the first thing I want us to take away is that just because Jesus is with us, it doesn't mean that we will live a storm-free life. Whether we like it or not, storms will come our way. The power of evil was broken forever on the cross. Absolutely. Absolutely. But evil is not yet finished, 
and Satan crouches at our doors with malevolence. Sometimes the storms in our lives are too big for us to handle. The storms that come when a relationship is strained or broken. The storms that come when work is crushing or lost. The storms that come through illness and grief. I don't need to list them all. So many of you know exactly what it's like to have life throw up problems so big, so unexpected, so beyond your ability to fix, that it doesn't matter what knowledge or experience or qualifications you have, you feel overwhelmed, frightened, helpless, desperate. What then? What are we to do? Well, like Job and like the disciples in the boat, we're to call on God. Pray to him in your fear or anger or whatever emotional estate you may be in. Pray to him in the midst of the calamity, in the very thick of the storm. Now, you might think that the best way to do that is to go into your room, close the door, meditate quietly, read some scripture and ask God for mercy. And if you can do that, that would be great. Or maybe you have no words, no energy, just tears. And so in the presence of the Lord, you cry and you weep and you pour out your heart and soul to him. And if you can do that, that's a good thing too. But did you notice what the disciples did, those fishermen? Basically, they scream at Jesus in utter despair and frustration. Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Well, surely real Christians don't do that kind of thing to God, do they? <laughs> oh, really? Why not? Who made you to have emotions? Who loves you more than anyone else? Who knows you better than you know yourself? It's okay to be authentic with God. You don't always have to get the prayer book out when you want to talk to him. I think, I dare say, he's probably even heard any swear word that you can think of. And if you need to get that raw and that real with God, then go for it. But don't be surprised or dismayed if God responds like he did with Job which might be that you'll still have to wait till you hear him. Or he might ask you a question that you can't answer. I wish that Jesus would instantly calm all the storms that are represented here this morning. But we have to recognize that though he could, for reasons known only to God, he doesn't always do that at least not according to our plans, our desires, and our timetables. Our journey through life will include stormy weather. But when the storms threaten to overwhelm you, to whom will you turn? Who can help you? You may want Jesus to do something, but he may simply want you to trust him. Will you do that? Listen. Listen in the whirlwind, in the chaos, 
in the confusion, listen in the suffering and your questioning, and hear his voice saying to you, peace, be still, hush. Amen.